Turn back to the Gospel of John, if you will. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Years ago, the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth was visiting the United States. He was lecturing in Chicago and Princeton, New Jersey. On one occasion, after a lecture, there was a question and answer period, and someone stood and asked him what was a typical, typically American kind of question, I guess. He said, Dr. Bart, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? He took the question seriously and thought about it for a moment, and then with childlike simplicity and grace, he answered, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Our text today is where most of us first learn that lesson. John 3.16. The lesson of God's love for us. This verse is undoubtedly the most well-known and dearly loved verse in the whole Bible. To this day, when Bible translators go out to primitive cultures and begin to reduce their language to writing and begin to give them God's word in their language, this is one of the very first verses that they ever have written to read in the mother tongue, John 3.16. When our children begin to memorize scripture, this is probably the first whole verse that they ever learn, John 3.16. In fact, this verse is so uh, important and it's considered to be so profound that you probably can't ever watch a major sporting event on uh, television without seeing someone hold up a sign that says simply John 3.16 because of the understanding that what this verse says is so profound that to know this one verse could make the difference between eternal life and judgment. A profound sense of humility having nothing new to say but privileged to declare the most wonderful, glorious truth in all of God's Word, I invite you to look at this familiar verse and the verses that follow it again. Follow as I read, John 3, 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plain, plainly seen that what he has done has been done through God. The truths I would have you hear from this text this morning are as simple as the text of John 3.16. Two things. First is this. God loves sinners. God loves when we begin to study this passage, the very first issue we face is how should we understand this statement that God so loved the world? I'm afraid that the way it's often been expounded does not really tell us what God intended us to hear 
Let me explain. Our temptation when we begin to talk and, and explain what this means, God so loved the world, is to say, imagine the vastness of the world. Masses of people, billions of people, and God loves every single one of them personally. Now, there's a certain truth to that. I mean, the, to the Jewish ears who were accustomed to hearing that God only loves them, to hear that God loves Gentiles, what a truth. That God loves those pagan dogs. Wow. And certainly we want to say that God loves us personally. He doesn't just throw out some principle of love. He knows us by name. He calls us one at a time. He loves us personally. But still that measuring God's love by the vastness of the world falls short because if you measure how many people actually does God love, billions upon billions of billions, you still end up with a finite number that could perhaps be calculated. Now how could any finite number expound the infinite, unlimited love of God. You haven't yet begun. It's a drop in the bucket. Furthermore, this measure of God's love by the vastness of the world, that he loves every individual everywhere, leaves us with some distortions, particularly for we begin to say, boy, if God loves every single person on earth, think of how valuable I am. Think of what a treasure I am to God. We begin to glory in ourselves, in our worth, rather than glorying in the love of God. E.B. Warfield reminds us clearly what the text invites us to think of is the greatness of the love of God, not the greatness of the human soul. The message of our text, I believe, is that God loves sinner. God who dwells in unapproachable light. God is who is so pure that he could not look upon wickedness. God who dwells in majesty and glory and absolute righteousness and goodness in flaming purity and stainless perfection. God who before whom cherubim and seraphim continually cry, holy, separate, holy is the Lord. God who needs nothing, who needs no one, who is so self-sufficient that no action of any of his creatures can affect him. That's this God who sits in majestic perfection in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. This God loves the world. Now John uses the word the world a lot. Does he really mean to say that here? The world God loves? For John, the world is just a synonym for everything that is evil and noisome and disgusting. There's nothing about the world that could attract the love of God, not even the love of a good man. The world is what the Christian labors to overcome. The world is what Christians are forbidden to love. Why? Because John himself says everything that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, all of that is not from the Father, it's of the world. John tells us that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. That's how bad it is. We only have to pick up a newspaper or turn on the evening news to see 
the vileness, the rottenness of the world. The world, you see. John tells us himself. The world is partners with the flesh and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the enemies of God. Yet our text says, God loves the world. Quoting Dr. Warfield again. See where we're brought? When we're told that God loves the world, it's as if we said that God loves the flesh and the devil. And we may indeed take courage from our text and say it boldly, God does love the world and the flesh and the devil. Therein is all the ground of our comfort and our hope, for we, you and I, are of the world and the flesh and the devil. But the love with which God loves us is not some kind of complacent love that is satisfied with our worldliness and our fleshliness and our devilishness. It's a love that eagerly seeks to save us from the world and the flesh and the devil. That's the point that John is making here. God loves not just the vastness of the world. God loves sinners. We see the greatness of God's love not in the billions of numbers of human souls. We see the measure of the greatness of God's love in the wretchedness of those he loves. The grace of God. To give you a little contrast, help you to see that. This week you watched the news or read the paper. You see that it was Victim's Day in the trial of Colin Ferguson. The angry man who walked on the subway at point-blank range gunned down people just because of his own nastiness. Killed six, wounded 19 others. Now convicted. Today we had the, this week we had the day where the victims could stand in the courtroom and look him right in the face and tell him what they thought. Did you see any of that? What? Unmitigated anger. Justified anger. Wrathful anger. Rage. And how could they feel anything else? Carolyn McCarthy whose husband was murdered, son paralyzed for life. How could she do anything but hate this man who intruded into her life and shattered everything precious to her? Inconceivable that she could stand there and look the attack in the face and say, Colin, I love you. Impossible, isn't it? the point our text is making. Here, beyond all comprehension, we read that God, who has been betrayed, who has been cursed, who has been assaulted, who has been hated, who has had our fists shaking in his face, 
whose head our proud looks curse his face. God stands and looks the world in the face and loves it. And loves it. How much? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Oh, we're not just talking about Jesus being born, the word becoming flesh and living among us. That's true. But on the cross, God gave his son. Paul says the same thing. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle John says the same thing in another place. You want to see love? Here is love, he says. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sin. There on the cross, the innocent, unique, only begotten son of God, named Jesus, bore that justifiable rage and wrath and anger of God in our place. There he endured its fury. There he satisfied its justice. There he paid the death sentence that we should have received. Why? Why would he? Why would the Father let him? What is intense enough and strong enough and powerful enough to drive anyone to that? God so loved the world that he gave his son. You who thought that you were beyond hope, you who knowing the wretchedness of your heart, knowing things that no one else knows about you. You who secretly thought that your sin was too vile, too heinous, too often repeated for you to ever know peace with God, to ever be clean again in his presence. Listen to the good news. God loves, loves, too good to be true God loves sinners you must be kidding God loves sinners but everybody else has given up on me God loves sinners but everyone knows I'm a failure God loves sinners the song in our book, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It reaches to the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled. Pardoned from his sin. God 
love sinners. So how do we respond? Second truth we need to hear. Trust Jesus and live. What God has done is so phenomenal. It demands some response, and we all will respond. Our text outlines two kinds of responses. First, there's the response that comes natural to us. From the time we were little kids, we learned to respond this way when we were guilty. You probably remember sometime, if you think back, when you were a child and you did something wrong, you know that if mom and dad find out, I'm going to be in big trouble. And you're out playing, hoping that they'll maybe not notice you. And then the most wonderful, loving, simple little thing, like your mother calling you for dinner. And this terror goes through your heart. I'm not hungry. <laughs> I didn't hear. You hide. You want to run away. Make yourself scared. Why? Because that's the natural response when we're guilty. And in fact, that's just how people tend to respond to the love of God when we're guilty. It's described in verse 19 and 20. Light has come into the world. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Our natural response. It's so comfortable just being where we are. There's a certain security in the darkness where people can't really see what I'm really like. So we hide. And we cover up. Why? Don't want to be exposed. If God begins to shine his light, his truth too closely, and he begins to get back into the cave where we live, we get uneasy and we shut off the light. Shut it off, whether it's our parent talking to us or a dear friend who loves us enough to call our hand and say, you're wrong here. You're walking away from the Lord. The preacher steps on our toes, stay away from church. We come to love the darkness because it's comfortable. It doesn't confront us with our guilt. And that's our natural response. When we respond that way, the process described here is we're condemning ourselves. We're closing out the light. We're condemning ourselves to live forever in the darkness. This is the way of condemnation. This is the way of those who perish. This is the way of unbelief. This is the way of death. But it comes natural, but it's the way of death. That's one response. But there's another response. And that's what we're called to in this text, and that is to trust Christ and live. That trust Christ and live is the way I would say it. Actually, a lot of different words are used here. In verse 16, it says, Whoever believes on him will not perish, but have eternal life. Again, in verse 18, it says, Whoever believes will not be condemned. Believe, that's the same word for faith or trust. 
faith is the noun, believe is the verb, John likes that verb. He uses it 98 times in this gospel. I'm writing so that you will believe, entrust yourself to Jesus. But he doesn't stop with just believe because, you see, we tend to think that to believe is to just give mental assent to something. Yeah, I agree that's true and go on hiding in the darkness. And so he goes on and he says in verse 21, whoever lives by the truth, literally does the truth, comes to the light. To believe in Jesus in the way it's talking about here is to believe it enough that we act on it, that we do that truth. What does that mean? Does it mean we have to go out and earn our salvation some way by keeping the law? You can't do that. To do the truth means we come to the light. We come to the Savior. We put away our fear of being exposed, believing that there's no reason to fear anymore because he's already paid the penalty of my sin. So we walk right out into the light and say, Lord, here I am. I'll walk in your ways. I'll listen to your voice. I'll walk with you. Believing that he came to save us, not to judge us. Put all that together, and I think what we end up with is trust Jesus and live. And when we do, what do we show? We're better than everybody else? No. The end of verse 21 says, when we come to the light, then it's plainly seen that what's been done has been done through God. When we come to the light, we show that it's God who did it from the beginning to the end because we're no different than anyone else. Look at me, I'm as wicked as anyone, and yet God has saved me through Christ. And we demonstrate that as we believe, walk in the light, do the truth. Trust Christ and live. Give me an illustration of these two responses, and then we'll close. We're approaching the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II. May will celebrate 50 years since the war in East in uh, Europe ended in July, 50 years since the war in the Pacific ended. As we do, we hear a lot more about World War II suddenly. I'm reminded of a story I heard back a few years ago, not years and years ago, but not like just last year either. Not too long ago, on one of the remote islands in the South Pacific, few years back, but decades after World War II ended, they found some Japanese soldiers. They didn't know the war was over. Here they had been for decades, 30, 40, some years, keeping their weapons in good order, defending their outposts, waiting to fight against the enemy if he should step on their island, should come to their place. Now they've been found by the enemy. What should they do? Well, I'm sure at first they kind of drew back and hoped maybe they hadn't been seen, but the enemy keeps coming. Not only that, but the enemy is now telling them, hey, the war is over. <laughs> Lay down your weapons and come on out. We're friends now. Japan and America are great buddies. Come on out. Now you put yourself in the position of those Japanese soldiers. 
For 30 or 40 years since you heard your last order, you have been faithful to maintain your position and to keep your weapons ready to fight against these Americans. What would you say? No way. I don't want to be friends with you. You're the enemy. So what would you do? How would you respond? Well, I suspect we'd run back into the hills further, dig deeper into the caves wherever we were hiding in hopes that we could avoid a confrontation. And if we couldn't come out with our cannons blazing, kill as many as we can, we're at war, it's the enemy more honorable to die in the firefight than it would be to surrender to the Yankee imperialists. Natural response. Good soldier. But suppose that you were one of those soldiers, as really happened, and you began to believe maybe this is true. Maybe this is why we haven't heard for so long. Then what would you do? Well, on the one hand, it'd be so easy. There's nothing to it. I'd lay down my arms and walk out in a whole new world and be friends. So simple. Oh, but so hard, isn't it? To believe that it's true means I would have to expose myself. I would have to give up my hiding. I would have to step out and be vulnerable. I would have to go against those who don't believe, who are my comrades. And I'd have to step out there and what if I'm wrong? I'm dead. So which would you do? Come out fighting and die for no purpose? Because that seemed to be the safe way? That's how you always thought. You didn't have to change your position or go against your friends or lay down your arms and walk out into a whole new world better than the one you knew before. You see, that's where we stand with God. The war is over. It ended on the cross one day where the Savior took the sentence that we deserve and endured the anger and the wrath of God that we deserve and conquered sin and death and hell and Satan. The war's over. And some of us are still holed up in the cave, maintaining our hostility, doing our own thing, Afraid of what might happen if we followed Christ. Afraid of what a tyrant he might be. Oh, today I announce to you, God loves sinner. There's nothing to fear. Believe it and lay down your arms and walk into the light. Is it risky? Sure it's risky. If Jesus didn't die for sinners, he's going to send you to hell. That's how risky it is. But he did die for sinners. to lay down my arms is to come and find myself in the care of a loving heavenly father who loved me enough to go to whatever length was necessary to save me 
not to condemn me. Well, I call you to Jesus today. And at the same time, I warn you, you can't win this fight. If you won't come to him, you're a fool. You can come out with cannons blazing, but you can't win. You'll only condemn yourself in a war that should have been over. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. The way I would state it, God loves sinners. So trust him and live. Amen. Shall we pray? Well, Lord, thank you for your great grace to us. Lord, we cannot even comprehend that you should love a world like ours and people like we know ourselves to be deep down inside. And so we can only stand in awe and say thank you. Lord, give us grace to not do what's so comfortable to just keep hiding with our friends in the darkness. To lay down our arms, believing what you've told us. To come out to serve Christ, knowing that there there's life and forgiveness and freedom. Oh, Father, I pray that you would take this truth and embed it deep in the hearts of each one of us. And Lord, if there are those that have never heard it before, never understood before, those who've heard a million times but have never laid down their arms and given themselves to you, I pray, Father, that this would be the day we would surrender ourselves to you, begin to do the truth and walk in the light. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.